Our reading today is, again, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. What is the most valuable commodity in the world? We might be tempted to say things like oil or gold, but in a digital age, in an age of Netflix, Instagram, and Google, more and more people are making the case that one of the most valuable commodities in the world is your attention. Why? Well, because we live in a world in which the amount of information, content, data, products, and consumer goods is growing exponentially, yet your ability to pay attention never grows. That means that, um, the, that we live in a world in which the amount of information is always growing, but your attention always remains the same. It never grows because we're human beings. Our attention is limited. It's finite. So if the amount of information competing for our attention is always growing, yet your ability to pay attention never grows, guess what? Your attention becomes an increasingly scarce and therefore an increasingly valuable commodity. It's called the attention economy. Now, why is your attention so important? Well, for the companies that are competing for it, it means money in their pockets, but why is your attention so important for you? Mary Oliver was a world-renowned poet who passed away last year. Towards the end of her life, she wrote a book of essays, and she concludes one of those essays by saying this, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. I think she means something like this, that when you give your attention, you give your love. You give yourself, you give your heart, and whatever you give your heart to, you become. Now here's why this is so important. We live in a world that is obsessed with identity. We're obsessed with becoming our authentic self, with becoming the self that we were meant to be. But if we're living in a digital age, that means that we're living in a distracted age. We live in an age in which we're constantly being distracted from Facebook by Instagram, and from Instagram by YouTube, and from YouTube by Twitter, and from Twitter by Netflix. So here's the thing. If your attention is what you give your heart to, 
And if whatever you give your heart to is what you become, then if we're always being distracted, if our attention is constantly being pulled in in multiple different directions at the same time, then what are we becoming? That is precisely the question that Jesus is pressing into us in this uh, uh, verse that we're looking at this morning. We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with this passage we just read. It's called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is a, it's a picture of the self you were meant to be. This morning, we're looking at the sixth Beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, what does this have to do with your attention and the self that you're becoming? Everything. Let's find out how by asking three questions this morning. What is pure in heart? What keeps us from being pure in heart? And lastly, how do we get a pure heart? What is pure in heart? What keeps us from it? And how do we get it, all right? First, what is pure in heart? In order to understand what this means, we have to understand first, what does the Bible mean when it talks about the heart? When we hear the word heart, we tend to think of that in terms of feelings and emotions. So for instance, in our culture, we have a saying, you just gotta follow your heart. And by that, we primarily mean listening to our feelings. So we say things like, it doesn't matter what society says, it doesn't matter what other people say, all that matters is your feelings. What does your heart say? Now, when Jesus talks about the heart, that includes our feelings, but it's so much more than that. One of the ways I like to think about this is as a bundle. The heart is kind of like a bundle. You know how you can bundle your cable TV and your internet and your smartphone all together in one package? The heart is kind of like that. It's a bundle. So that means that includes our feelings, but also our mind. And especially it includes our will. Your will is that part of you that decides, I will do this. I will not do that, which means it's also especially tied to your deepest desires. You see, your feelings, your mind, your will, your desires, all of that is bundled together in what the Bible calls the heart. The heart is like the CEO of the soul. It's the executive center of your life. That's what Jesus means when he talks about the heart. But what does he mean when he talks about being pure? Again, we have to make sure that we're hearing what Jesus is saying here rather than filtering this through our own cultural lenses. When we hear the word pure, we might hear things like moral purity, like living a morally pure lifestyle. We might especially hear things like sexual purity, or we might also hear things like um, sincerity or kindness, as in when we say, oh, that person has such a pure heart. Now, again, when Jesus talks about pure, it includes those things, but it's so much more than that. One of the uh, most helpful or simplest ways really to think about this is like this. Uh, Imagine somebody hands you a glass and they say, this is pure water. What do they mean by that? Well, they don't mean that this water is morally pure or that, um, that it's sincere or kind. What they're saying is there's no extra ingredients in this. There's only one ingredient. This is 100% pure water. Purity means uh, no extra ingredients, just one ingredient. It means undivided, undiluted. It means unity, singleness, oneness. Now, we put all of this together, and here's what this means. To be pure in heart means that your heart, 
the center of your life, that the very core of your being, that it's focused and centered on one thing and one thing only, God. That's what this means. It means um, a, a singleness of attention to God, a singleness of devotion to God. Now let's be clear about something else here. Um, this does not mean that you can't love more than one thing or can't be devoted to more than one thing, like your family or your spouse or your career or your community. It does mean that of all the things you love in this world, one thing is gonna have pride of place that you will love and serve one thing above all other things. Friends, this is an unbreakable spiritual principle. Now, the Beatitudes is really, um, it's an introduction to things that Jesus is gonna go into much greater detail on later on in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're gonna learn more about this as we go through, especially in chapter six, but here's why this is so important for us today. Remember what we said at the beginning. Whatever you give your heart to, you become. Whatever you give your love to, it shapes you in its image. We become what we love. We become whatever we give our hearts to. Whatever soaks up the undivided, undistracted gaze of your heart shapes you in its image. So for instance, the Apostle John wrote a few letters to the early church back in the first century. In 1 John chapter three, he says this, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, he's saying that the more clearly you see Jesus, the more you become like him. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus is saying that the pure in heart will see God because God is all they want to see. The pure in heart will see God because God is all they want to see. One thing, here's the point, friends, there is one thing that you will love and serve supremely. There is one thing that that you will give your heart to above all other things, and whatever that one thing is, it's going to shape you in its image. So here's the question. What is that one thing in your life? Be careful how you answer. It's easy to think we know the answer to that question because we know what we want to be the answer or what we think should be the answer, But it's so easy for us to be blind to the things that compete for our attention and distract our hearts from God. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen what is pure in heart, but secondly, uh, we need to take a look at what keeps us from having a pure heart. If, If purity of heart means undivided love for God alone, then one of the obvious challenges to this is a heart that's divided because something other than God is on the throne of our heart. So, um, you know, for instance, the Bible calls this sin. It means loving something other than God supremely. Uh, One of the classic ways the Bible talks about this is idolatry. That means that there are hundreds, if not thousands of things that are constantly competing for the attention of your heart and for the deepest love of your heart. You know, the attention economy is nothing new. The Bible has been talking about this for thousands of years. So, What is idolatry and how does it work? Well, let's take a look at this. Idolatry always begins by by blinding us to the real source of evil in this world. Idolatry begins by blinding us to the real source of evil in this world. So if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapters one and two, it tells us that God created the world and that he created it good. 
that means that material creation is good. But then in Genesis 3, because of humanity's rebellion against God, as a result of that, the whole world is falling apart. So here's how idolatry works. Instead of looking inside and and seeing our hearts in rebellion against God, idolatry means that that we look around a world that's falling apart and we find something in God's good creation and then we identify that as being the real source of evil in all of our problems in the world and then we find something else in God's creation and we raise it up as a savior to, to deliver us from all of our problems. So here's how idolatry works. Um, Let me give you an example of this in real time, something from our own modern world. And and, um, like we said last week, because of um, our cultural and political moment right now, let's see what this looks like um, politically. Uh, In America, the dominant political philosophy in our country is something called liberalism. Now, don't be thrown by that word uh, that both progressives and conservatives all operate underneath the umbrella of what's called classical liberalism. But here's what liberalism does. Liberalism looks around at the world and it says that the real source of evil in the world and the source of all of our problems in this world is any um, source of authority outside of our individual self. So that would be things like institutions or customs or norms or social expectations. Liberalism looks at those things and says those things are bad because they limit you, they bind you, they prevent you from being the authentic self that you were meant to be. So liberalism's solution to that problem is individual freedom. It, it, it says the solution to our biggest problems of any authority source outside of ourself is individual freedom. That means that in liberalism, individual freedom becomes an idol because we've demonized any source of authority outside of our individual self. And when we look at politics in America, we see that exactly going on. So for instance, conservatives tend to fear anything that would bind our individual economic freedom But progressives tend to fear anything that would bind our individual cultural freedom, things like identity freedom, sexual freedom, reproductive freedom. Both conservatives and progressives both have a tendency to resist any authority source outside of human autonomy, outside of the individual self, especially God. Friends, idolatry always blinds us to its presence in our lives. It always blinds us to its presence in our lives. So as you come to vote this year, or whether you even vote at all, if that's where your conscience is leading you, we need to be aware, we need to see the idolatries in our political system today. We need to see all of the ways that we are in idolatrous rebellion against God and see the idolatries that are constantly distracting our hearts from God. So for instance, on the political right in our culture today, There are huge problems, especially with leadership that is characterized by blatant, unrestrained, habitual deception, by rhetoric that inflames racial bigotry and racial violence, by uh, habitual disregard for basic human dignity, and by a whole host of other behaviors that are damaging our social, moral, cultural, and spiritual fabric in society. I read a remarkable article just a few days ago by John Piper. If you're not familiar with who he is, John Piper is one of the most famous white evangelical pastors in the last 40 years. One of his main points in this article 
is that uh, the character of a leader always has a shaping effect on the character of a nation. So he points to the Bible and he says, look at how many times the Bible connects the sins of a leader to the sins of a nation and says that the king sinned and caused the nation to sin. So here's what he says at one point in his article, flagrant boastfulness, vulgarity, immorality, and factiousness are not only self-incriminating, they are nation-corrupting. They move out from centers of influence to infect whole cultures. The last five years bear vivid witness to this infection at almost every level of society. Therefore, Christians communicate a falsehood when we act as if policies and laws that protect life and freedom are more precious than being a certain kind of person. The church is paying dearly and will continue to pay for our communicating this falsehood year after year. Friends, there are problems on the political right, but there are problems on the political left as well. Deep problems, like corruption and divisiveness, like um, intolerance for any dissenting viewpoints. But one of the biggest ones I want to point out is this. Secular progressivism is, is perhaps the only culture in the history of the world that doesn't believe it has any beliefs. Now, let me explain what that means by giving you an example. Um, last week, we were talking about abortion. The, the uh, moral tension in abortion is um, between a woman's right to choose and a baby's right to live. So there are many people that try to take a neutral position on this by saying that, look, the idea that a fetus is a human being with rights, that's a faith belief, and we should never impose our faith beliefs on society. Here's the problem with that. Um, the central moral question at play in abortion is, what is a human person? Most abortion advocates will not deny that... Um, that a, a, a fetus is a human being, what they do deny is that it's a human person because a person has rights. And if a human fetus is a person, then that person has rights just like everybody else. So there are lots of moral philosophers and bioethicists like Marianne Warren or Peter Singer, uh, folks who will propose a list of capacities and functions that define personhood. So things like this, this is how they define personhood. Uh, consciousness, reasoning, preferences and desires, self-awareness. Now, there are big problems with this definition of personhood because as you look at this list, you realize that newborn babies don't have many of these capacities. People with dementia do not have these capacities. Are they therefore not persons with rights? Folks like Peter Singer would actually say, that's right, they're not persons with rights. We can kill them. But here's the real problem I want us to notice this morning. Science can tell us whether or not a being actually has any of these capacities, but science cannot tell us what a person is, whether it's this or some other definition. Science can't tell us that. That means that our belief in personhood is just that, it's a belief. Which means that our belief in human rights is just that, it's a belief. For secular people to say, I don't have beliefs, I just have facts, that's not true. That means that a woman's right to choose and a baby's right to live, both of those things are faith beliefs. And, and to say that we should never impose our faith beliefs on society, therefore, is both morally incoherent 
as well as being contrary to the way that we operate every single day in society. Friends, our world is full of political idols that distract and capture the attention of our hearts. But our world is full of all kinds of other idols, cultural idols, all kinds of things that, that compete for our attention and distract our hearts from God. And we give our hearts to these things. And whenever we do that, it shapes us in its image. And that leads to our last point. We've seen what is pure in heart. It means a heart that gives its undivided love to God alone. What is the, what keeps us from having this purity of heart? Idolatry. But lastly, how do we get a pure heart? How does it actually happen in us? You know, in the Beatitudes, if you've been with us, you've seen this. Uh, Jesus is constantly echoing other parts of Scripture. And he's doing the same thing with this beatitude. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, any first century Jewish person back then would have immediately recognized, oh, he's talking about Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, it asks the question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? When it talks about the mountain and the holy place, um, what it's talking about is the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, that means uh, that basically Psalm 24 is asking the question, uh, how can we come into the presence of God and worship him face to face? The answer is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Do you see how close this is to what Jesus is telling us? In this beatitude, Jesus is promising us that if you have clean hands, if you have a pure heart, and that if you don't trust in idols or worship false gods, then you are welcome to come into the presence of God and worship him face to face. That's the promise, but here's the problem. Who among us has clean hands? Who among us has a pure heart? Who among us has never trusted in an idol or bowed down to a false god? The answer is none of us. That's why the Bible is constantly saying that no one can see God's face and live. That means that um, whenever we come into the direct, unmediated presence of God, it, it's, that's not just threatening for us, it's dangerous for us. No one can see God's face and live. Now, in our culture, of course, uh, we normally conceive of God as a personal God of love, which is right, because that vision of God comes to us from the Bible and only from the Bible. But here's the thing, God is also holy. In other words, God is pure. He has no imperfections. So unless we share in God's holiness, unless we share in God's purity and perfection, then to come into the direct, unmediated presence of God is, is not just threatening for us, it's radically dangerous for us. It's kind of like getting too close to the sun. If you don't share the same nature as the sun, then if you get too close, the sun will disintegrate you. Friends, that's what it's like to come into the presence of God. Because we don't um, share his purity. We're not holy, we're not pure. That means that to come into the presence of God is always going to reveal our impurities, our idolatries, our imperfections. It's gonna reveal us to ourselves. So for instance, when Moses met God on Mount Sinai, God told Moses, Moses, no one can see my face and live. So God had to hide Moses in a rock and cover his eyes so that when the presence of God passed by, Moses wouldn't be incinerated. 
Or in Isaiah chapter six, when the prophet Isaiah has a vision of the holiness of God in the temple, he doesn't cry out, well, there you are, you waggish imp. No, he cries out, woe is me, for I am lost. Or when the apostle Peter, in Luke chapter five, he has this realization that Jesus Christ is the embodied manifestation of God on earth. When he realizes that, he falls on his face and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Friends, to come into the presence of God always reveals us to ourselves. It always is radically threatening, radically dangerous. To come into the direct, unmediated presence of God is always dangerous for us. So, The reason is because we're not pure in heart. We do worship other idols. We do bow down before false gods. So how can Jesus promise us that that we can ascend the mountain of the Lord, stand in the presence of God, and worship him face to face? Here's how. There is one and one person only who had clean hands and a pure heart. There is one person and one person only who never worshiped an idol and never bowed down to false gods. When Jesus Christ came to earth as a human being, he always saw God's face. He always dwelt in God's presence perfectly. Jesus Christ is the only one who was perfectly true and pure and holy. Friends, Jesus Christ is the only one who had the right to ascend the mountain. And he did. But the mountain Jesus ascended was Mount Calvary, where they nailed him to a cross and where Jesus offered himself to God as a sacrifice for our idolatries. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the one who always saw God's face, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, God hid his face from Jesus so his face could shine on you forever. Friends, Jesus Christ is the one who made a way for us into the presence of God through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. We come in on Jesus' coattails. We, We enter into God's presence because of Jesus through his holiness, through his purity, through his perfection. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, he took all of our idolatries and rebellions upon himself so that he could give us his holiness and his righteousness. Dear ones, do you want to see God? Do you want a heart that, that is free of idols, that is free of false gods that enslave you and keep you in bondage? Do you want to be the self that you were created to be, the pure self that God created you to be? Look at Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The more you look at Jesus, the more you behold and gaze upon Jesus, the more you become like him. How does that happen? Well, lots of ways, but let me offer you just a couple of suggestions really briefly as we close. First is this. You know how easy it is to see the blindness and the idolatry in other people? Super easy to see it in them, isn't it? It's really hard to see it in ourselves. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Whenever you see the blindness and idolatry of other people, instead of saying, I can't believe how blind that person is, turn the lens on yourself Ask God to reveal to yourself, God, how am I being idolatrous? How am I just as, as, as liable and susceptible to the same blindness and idolatries as I'm seeing in all these people around me? How am I doing the same thing? Help me to see it, God. And then when you do that, as you bring your idolatries to God, I would encourage you 
throughout your day, throughout your week, to, to find times, maybe five minutes here, 10 minutes there. Make them regular times, times when you can shut down the distractions and all the things that compete for your attention and, and take those times to spend in the presence of Jesus in solitude, silence, prayer, in contemplation, in adoration. Friends, the more you see Jesus, the more you become like him. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Whatever we give our heart to, we become. The more you gaze upon Jesus, the more you behold Jesus, the more you become like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning that even though because of our own rebellion and idolatry, we have made it radically dangerous dangerous for us to come into your presence. Father, we praise you this morning that you have nonetheless made a way for us back into your presence, back into your shining face upon us. It is through Jesus. And Father, we thank you for Jesus this morning. We pray that you would help us to identify more and more accurately and truly and clearly the idolatries in our lives. Lord, the idolatries in our culture, the political idolatries, the ideological idolatries, help us to see how they impact us, how when we give our attention and our heart to those things. They shape us in their image. And help us therefore also, Lord, to turn our attention back to you and to come back into your presence on the coattails of Jesus, the true, perfect, pure, and holy one who died for us so that we might live unto you. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.